motherfucker. <laughs> sorry. That'd be a fun cold open. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Sorry, good. <laughs> All right, you ready to go? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. Do you want to? I'll let you. I'll let you. I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party. I'm so sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues. I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we're very mature adults um, who do, you know, talk about very mature adult things and, and films and stuff like that. I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. <laughs> Hi. Have you, have you? you recovered from the humor of my opener? Nope. Like, <laughs> nope, I haven't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, th- I think that I I may edit that in just so that everybody knows what, what we're talking about. Um, it just summarizes so many things. <laughs> uh, how are you doing, Karen, other than finding me hilarious, which is as it should be? I'm great. And you are hilarious. People need to understand this. I, I I'm angry and hilarious. Yeah, that's my that's my vibe. <laughs> well, you are an angry Muppet. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> Man, I've been called so many things on Twitter. It's really exciting, but that was one of my favorites. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, How are you? My, I'm good. One of my friends, uh, 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 boyfriends, actually referred to me as the angry movie girl because he couldn't remember my name for a little while, and um. <laughs> Uh, and it was complimentary, as as he said. I was like, okay, yes, that's fine. That's fine. I'm good. Uh, so, yes, this is the first recording that we've done after Thanksgiving, which has been nice. been nice to take a little bit of a break. Uh, was. was your Thanksgiving good? It was delightful. My nephew's home from college for, you know, just for the weekend. He's already gone back now, but it was just fun to see him. It's crazy. He's a freshman. But it's crazy how much he's grown up just in three months being away from home, you know? So they get they get, yeah. they get so big so fast. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> and now that he's an adult, I guess I have to stop making him promise to not grow up. Because <laughs> he did it anyway. So <laughs> those little bastards. I know. How was yours? It was good. It was chill. It was nice to to see some folks and to eat too much and drink too much and um, watch a very cheesy movie afterwards, which is continues to embarrass me. And I will be embarrassed about until this until like the end of time. Okay, uh, well, now you have to talk about it. <laughs> no, I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it. All right, it's the 2011 film Lovebirds <laughs> starring Reese Darby and Sally Hawkins. It is cheesy as fuck. And why did you watch it? I'm not telling anyone why I watched it because I think Sally Hawkins is a really good actress and and she's fantastic. She is actually like, it's a fun, it is actually a fun movie. I will 100% say that like it's fucking adorable and it made me so embarrassed to exist. Like that's all. Maybe I'll talk about it at some other time on a very special episode of Citizen Dame. (laughs) God damn it so embarrassing it's fucking embarrassing maybe we should make that a patreon exclusive so people have to pay money if they want to hear the story to, to like hear me giggling for half yes. an hour like which is basically what it will be because i cannot i i don't know what's happened um <laughs> but we're not going to talk about that we're going to talk about billy wilder today because <laughs> this is our last november episode uh for the year and we decided that i think it's our last november episode is that correct? Yeah. November, yes. November, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, May not be for, the last time we talk about noir. But. Well, no. I mean, noir is kind of ubiquitous. It it, yes. it is one of the major um, vibes, as it were, uh, styles of of a lot of uh, filmmaking. So, but we want to talk about Billy Wilder, who is, uh, you know, he's very much a quintessential noir director. Although I think that um, we kind of forget that sometimes because so many of his films ju- do skew more towards the comedic. 
um, even dark comedy side. And uh, but he made he made a number of very famous noirs. And so we're going to talk about those today. Um, just to let everybody know, the three films that we will be discussing are Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, and Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, so if you have not seen those films, especially I would say if you have not seen Witness for the Prosecution, um, you know, maybe jump over our discussion of that simply because it's it's an Agatha Christie story. And I do think it's one of those that is very, it's fun to go in blind. Yes. Um and not know kind of everything that happens in the story, uh, even though I think we're going to have to discuss a lot of what happens because of the nature of it. And so it also to- ends with the, hey, don't tell your friends the ending. Don't spoil it for people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a gr- it's a fantastic film. I'm really excited about talking about it. But just to warn people, if you have not seen it, definitely jump over that part, uh, which will be at the end of the episode. And then we'll, uh, and then come back after you've seen it. Cause it's worth going in and not knowing puns about it. Um, so Wilder was actually, uh, born in Austro-Hungary. What was Austro-Hungary at the time as Samuel Wilder. Uh, he was a, to, to a family of uh, Polish Jews in a town that was originally part of the Austro-Hungarian empire. Most of his family died in the Holocaust. He had left to go to Paris uh, around about the time that Hitler was rising to power. So he kind of got out and was and was basically very lucky. Um, but so he's he's a really interesting figure. He worked on a lot of early German films. Um, he also worked with people like Ernst Lubitsch as a writer. Most of his early credits have to do with writing, not with directing. Um, which means that his his uh, first like kind of major directing credits are um, a French film, uh, Mauvaise Gran, which I have not seen, The Major and the Minor, and Five Graves to Cairo. And then after that, he did Double Indemnity. So this is someone who kind of hit the ground running when it came to being a director, but he had worked with a lot of really well-known um, people up to that point. And by the time he gets to Hollywood, he is very much an established voice as a writer and obviously understands filmmaking in a really intimate way long before he even became a director. Before I get, before we get into the movies, like Karen, if you could say, which was your favorite Billy Wilder film that you've seen? Do you have a particular favorite? The Apartment. Yeah. I love The Apartment. Yeah. It, that's a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah I, I love I, it so much it's 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 a great holiday movie but it's also it it's it's known as being a comedy and like a romantic comedy but it really deals with some serious topics in yeah. some very good ways and I just one of the things that I love about Billy Wilder is his writing and I think that the the conversations particularly between um Shirley MacLaine and um oh my gosh <laughs> why are names why do names leave my brain jack, jack lemon, lemon. <laughs> like i don't know what it is about saturday mornings at eight o'clock but everything leaves my brain but uh, anyway i just like the conversations between the two of them the flirting and then the this like really serious stuff it's such a such a good such a good movie yeah it is yeah i i completely um, it's it's actually a film I don't watch that much because it does have all of those serious elements. It makes me uncomfortable. It's like, oh, this is too too real almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's sad. There, there's like, I mean, there's attempted suicide in that film. Yes. Um, it's but it it is, it's very real. And one of the things I like about Wilder generally, and I think I will talk about this with the films that we're discussing, is the amount of stuff he got away with in 1940s and 50s Hollywood, because some of the subject matters and some of the things that actually get get addressed are very like serious and complicated and kind of and very progressive topics. I mean, my favorite Billy Wilder film is Some Like It Hot, uh, which I think we've mentioned before. It is just such a wonderful film in so many different ways. Um, But I mean, that film ends with a pretty clear implication that two men are going to get married. And mm-hmm. it's it's a joke, like it's a joke. And I think that that's part of how he gets away with some of that. He's like, oh, no, it's a comedy. It's a joke. And it's like, but it isn't. And we know that it isn't. It doesn't feel like really a joke because we've seen everything that has come before that. 
Um, and he does manage to like in, in his writing and in his directing, he does manage to get away with doing some of those things that um, I, I think that uh, there are a number of other directors that just couldn't, that just wouldn't mm-hmm. have been able to thread that needle. And uh, it's really a testament, I think, to his abilities. Yeah, I really do think that it's because of the way that he writes. He he writes mm-hmm. in such a way that um, sometimes if you're not really paying attention, it's easy to to miss what he's actually saying because there's text and there's subtext and he's a master at subtext, but he's also, he also writes in such a way that you don't necessarily want to overlook what he's really saying. And Mm -hmm. even if you don't like, you know, even if some people don't agree with certain elements, like it's so engaging that you can't help, but enjoy it anyway and be entertained by it. He's great. I, you know, I, I was thinking about this as I was watching these movies this week and just really getting wrapped up in, in this just delicious dialogue that he writes, that he wrote, that he was so Mm -hmm. good at. And I was just thinking about how, like, um, I think Aaron Sorkin current day is a, he's good, right? He's, he's kind of falling off a little bit, but like back in the, in his heyday in the nineties, like he would write, really good dialogue and just like really juicy stuff and it was really fun to like watch people you know like the west wing was one of my favorite shows because it was just so fun to watch these conversations happen and i just think my gosh he as good as aaron sorkin has been like he doesn't hold a candle to billy wilder you know like like Wilder just really was a master at this. And I'm, you know, I'm so excited about the movies that we're talking about today because they're just so compelling because, because they're so well-written. Yeah. And, and you do have to say all three of the films that we're talking about are very talky movies. Like there's Mm -hmm. two of them. There's a lot of voiceover. Um, There's, so there's a lot of like characters and it's voiceover from characters too. It's not an, an external narrator in any way. So these are very much characters that are telling their story. One of one of the things that I think is really interesting about all three films is that there are very much about perspective and whose yeah. perspective is being taken, um, who is telling the story. So wh- through whom are we actually filtering the narrative? And you have to remember that when a film does that, I think Wilder was very aware of that when a film does that, you have to think about the who is the narrator and why they're telling the story, what it actually mm-hmm. means and how we're gaining impressions and understandings of characters through someone else. And it's, so there isn't that same kind of distance that in certain films um, you get kind of the camera more as this external uh, narrator. There's a, there's a lot more imposition of perspective. And yeah. you've got to be aware of that going into it because it's going to shape the way, like the information that we take away from the film. Um, not unlike Blood Simple, which we talked about on our Patreon. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's let's start out with the first film, uh, Double Indemnity, which is a 1944 film starring Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. Um, shout out to Shakita, who was disappointed that we did not talk about Double Indemnity on our Barbara Stanwyck episode, which kind of led us into doing this one. So thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> it gives us an excuse to keep talking about Barbara Stanwyck, too. And I mean, what a performance in this film. Like, seriously. So, good. <laughs> uh, so the film stars Fred McMurray as an insurance salesman, Walter Neff, who meets Barbara Stanwyck, uh, Philip, uh, Phyllis Dietrichson. A, I like the Wikipedia page describes it describes her as a provocative housewife. <laughs> uh, that's one way of describing it, but okay. Yes. Um, and and between the two of them, they basically come up with a plot to murder her husband, to to get get her husband life insurance, and then murder him and kind of run away together. And so the plot is about that. Um, one of the interesting things I think of this film is that the whole thing begins with Walter narrating it, right? We get the ending first. Right. No, we kind of know what happens. We don't entirely know everything that has led up to it because that was that's what most of the film is about. But so we have Walter sitting there in his office dying, and it's quite obvious that he's dying. 
narrating the story of what happened between himself and Phyllis and how things have all come to this pass for his friend, um, played by Edward G. Robinson, a claim, a claims adjuster, uh, who's also like, I mean, Edward G. Robinson is so good in this. He's just mm-hmm. delightful to watch. Um, so again, that whole thing with perspective, it all starts out from Walter's perspective and the film takes Walter's perspective throughout the entire, the entire narrative because it's the story that he's telling. Right. Um, and so that's, that's one of those places. I think it's interesting what we see him seeing and how he interprets it. And the most obvious to me is that opening sequence with him and Barbara Stanwyck when she comes to the top of the stairs. So do do you have thoughts on that beginning, uh, Karen? Of course I have thoughts <laughs> on that beginning. <laughs> no, I, uh, I just, I, I love, this is, you know, this is again, um, just to, to say Billy Wilder as the writer is so good because he, he sucks you in with this really interesting opening where um, you have this, like you said, this obviously dying man who is giving a confession and you're just like, wait, what, you know, like it really just pulls you in. Cause he seems like a pretty upstanding guy, but he starts confessing to some really dark stuff. And then it goes back to, you know, a year ago, what had happened mm-hmm. and this first meeting it's I think one of the things that uh, that makes this besides Barbara Stanwyck being just perfection. Um, but I think that part of the reason this also works so well and why you get pulled into it is because Fred McMurray as Walter, he's also just such a doofus. <laughs> but one that you want to like you want to like <laughs> learn more about him and like how he got himself into the situation. But everything he does from the beginning it's like he just makes really dumb choices and it's clearly <laughs> just because he's so captivated by this alluring beautiful woman and so everything that that happens out of that is really just because he's you know he's completely hypnotized and mesmerized by her and i really <laughs> love the way that they are introduced the way that it's staged the way that it's it's filmed i just i think it's it's so great well, yeah, exa- exactly. She come. I mean, she comes to the top of the stairs in a towel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the first kind of image. And it's not a clear image either. Like, it's very obviously from his perspective. Yes. But the first image we get is this gorgeous woman, because she's Barbara Stanwyck, in a towel um, through kind of the bars of the uh, of the stairway, the, the landing. The um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that she's walked out, that she's walked in front of. And then she comes back out. She gets dressed. <laughs> Um, and she comes back out and she comes down the stairs and there's this whole perspective on the anklet that she's wearing and and this real focus on it. The whole thing is like just incredibly sexual. But yeah, I think one of the things that does make the film work is that Fred McMurray is a doofus. Like he and he's a doofus who obviously thinks that he's irresistible. Right. <laughs> um, and that's that's part of it is that and again, his narrative is very much like, oh, she was like into me within the first minute we met. It's just like, I think that she knew you were a mark there, bro. Like, mm-hmm. like she saw you looking at her. And I was like, ah, well, I can fuck this guy's life up. Like, this is going to be easy. <laughs> and and I do think that that's I think that that's intentional on the part of the film and on the part of Wilder, because we know I, I think part of it is that the character of Walter doesn't know what kind of movie he's in, but we do, right? We know what the story is. We know this woman is dangerous. Like the minute she's on screen, it's like, she's dangerous. She's going to try to kill you. She's going to fuck up your life, et cetera. And of course he doesn't know that. And the result is that the audience is in this um, stronger position than, than the character, but is also able to kind of see Walter himself a little bit more clearly than he's able to see himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to say like, he's a doofus, he's getting himself into a situation really quickly that, uh, he's not going to be able to handle. And that all works, uh, through kind of showing her and even her behavior is not particularly flirtatious with him. He's pursuing her. She's just kind of like, who are you and what are you doing here? Right. Um, sorry. Yeah. It- 
Oh, it just, it makes me, I mean, I've seen this with, with men that I know, you know, it's like, oh, she asked me for the time. She's totally into me, you know? And it's like, exactly. this is just <laughs> how men are like, oh, this woman looked at me. She obviously wants, wants me, you know? And, <laughs> and it's just captured so well in Wilder's writing and in McMurray's performance that, um, this just, obviously she's looking at me and and introduced herself to me in this way she definitely wants to run away with me and yeah. it's totally believable that he would think that and i think just going to your point about perspective i think that that it's it's so smart to can to keep the movie always in mm-hmm. neff's perspective walter's perspective so that uh, you really do kind of just only here we, we don't need to know what anybody else is thinking because we do know what everybody else is thinking um yeah. but staying with him staying on his perspective makes it really easy to um not easy but you know just really makes it more of like just oh this guy is is really about to get worked over and you know he kind of deserves it because he's an idiot <laughs> well yeah it, it's it's interesting then because it is it is this film that takes this perspective, but that also allows the audience to see everything from the outside. Obviously, because that's mm-hmm. that you know it's third, third, still a third person narrator in terms of the camera, right? But um, we know that, but we know that we're hearing his perspective. That's the yeah, thing. Like we're, exactly, he's kind of an unreliable narrator, but we're not believing him because we can see what's real. Well, yeah, exactly. So it it walks that line between like what we can see and interpret of her behavior and how he interprets her behavior, and that the voiceover also contributes to that. So we get little punctuations of the story that he's telling himself, basically. He's mm-hmm. telling he's telling his friend, but he's also telling himself. This yeah. is the narrative that he has around it. And you, it, it is kind of interesting to, to be embedded in that way because it makes the, it makes the viewer, if the viewer really sits down and thinks about it, just like, well, what is the actual story? You know, what, if it were told from her perspective, what would it look like? If it were told from the maid's perspective, what would it look like? Um, and of course, we're never going to get that. The only narrative that we get is his. But it, it, the film does a really good job of not, of aligning itself with him, but also gaining a little bit of distance from him and allowing the viewer to make their own judgments. Mm-hmm. Um it's a it's a difficult thing to do, actually, and and not a lot of I think Wilder does it, Hitchcock does it in a number of his films, um, Orson Welles does it, like Arto Preminger, like that that kind of shifting attention, basically. Yeah. So what I mean, what else do we want to talk about when it comes to to double indemnity? I think the perspective thing was the thing that really jumped out for me with all three of these films. But this is still a, a noir, right? So you've got this very complicated murder plot that it's funny because i've seen this film a number of times and halfway through this watch i was like i don't remember how the fuck they decide to kill this guy like how (laughs) how do they work it out i don't recall and so it's quite it was quite nice so i was like oh that's how they did it it's like (laughs) watching a new movie every time (laughs) well and and going back to that that perspective thing even the case of the murder a lot of it is about perception Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who thinks what and who imagines what. And as the viewer, we're like, oh, this is kind of foolproof. They're totally going to get away with it. And then we see in the aftermath how particularly the Edward G. Robinson character begins to break it down um, and approach. So truth. quickly. Yeah. That, that uh, it's just like so quickly, like right mm-hmm. away, he's kind of on it, you know? Yeah, he knows it's it's that that intuition that he's got. Mm-hmm. He's like he knows there's something wrong here. There's something off. Like this doesn't make sense. Um, but but again, we also know from the beginning of the film because Walter tells us you got it wrong, right? He says that to to the the dictaphone that he's speaking into. He's like, right. you figured out some of it, but not all of it because you got you wound up getting the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a- again that those elements of perception like we as the viewers have seen what has happened but and we know what walter knows and we know to a certain degree what phyllis knows but the other characters are interpreting the evidence in slightly different ways and they're kind of leading slowly to the truth but never quite getting there it's a really interesting setup yeah yeah it is uh so do you have other things to say about this i i'm talking a lot (laughs) um 
<laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Should we talk about the plan? Should we talk about Stanwick herself? Should we talk about... Let's, let's talk about Barbara Stanwyck because I fully believe that... Uh, I mean, I would commit murder for her. Definitely. Like... <laughs> I I um, buy yeah. that. <laughs> it wouldn't take much convincing, yeah. No. <laughs> um, but she again, she gives a great performance. And for uh the for the viewer who kind of knows what the score is going to be, we know that this is gonna turn out badly for Walter. Um, mm-hmm. we know right from the very beginning, but the whole way that she shifts, and we talked about this on our on the Stanwick episode as well, the way that she shifts from being like this kind of somewhat aloof and then slowly flirtatious and then like oh you don't understand how the suffering that i've gone through you know all of those kinds of steps they're all very organic um and the way that she kind of changes her approach and her attitude depending upon what she perceives in particularly in walter Mm -hmm. yeah she's really good at at um kind of keeping things a little bit I mean, she never gives everything away ever, but um, she always gives just enough to make him think, well, to keep him on the hook, basically. But she does it in such a good way. And it's great performance from her because um, it's also very easy for us to be taken in, even though we know that she's the femme fatale, even though we know that that there's a plot here it's easy for us to want to be on her side and just assume that whatever she's really after is totally justified. Yeah. She's very sympathetic Mm -hmm. um, throughout. And I, I don't know. Do we ever buy that? She really loves Walter that she really cares about what happens to him. I kind of go back and forth on that one. Cause you get to the ending and she's kind of like, kind of like, she's going to shoot you there, bro. Uh, I kind of do believe that she cares. Not that she ever would be would ever be in love with him. I don't believe she would ever fall in love with him, even if like none of the ending happened. But I do I do kind of get the sense at the end that she feels bad about having to shoot him. <laughs> that she's just kind of like, well, <laughs> this is just where we're at. There's no way around this. But uh yeah. Well, but- and, and he's so fucking stupid too. Like he goes in and he basically tells her own plot to her. Yeah. And yeah. and you're just like, she's going to kill you. Like, she's going to shoot you. You think this woman <laughs> is not. She engineered the death of her husband and she's been just like carrying it off without a glitch. You she think got that- you to murder her husband so she <laughs> wouldn't have to do it. <laughs> and, and now you're just like, oh, let me explain to you how I figured out what a bitch you are. It's just like, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, but yeah. there is that moment where like she she could save herself. She could pull the trigger a second time. Right. And she doesn't. And and that's what ultimately I mean, that that's what damns her in the film. Uh, it's it's one of those. It, the the ending here is slightly different from the the ending of the, the Kane novel on which the, the film is based. Um, same basic outcome, but a slightly different, uh, slightly different setup, basically. But it is one of those films that I do wonder if it had been outside of Hollywood at the time period, if it had been outside of the. Um, the code how it would have actually ended because i'm there's always a point in this film where i'm like i kind of want her to get away with it like i hope just shoot him like shoot him a second time just let (laughs) this end you know um and and of course she doesn't but it's it's one of those times where i'm like but she could yeah i'd be okay with that Yeah, but that's where it's like, I also think if he hadn't ever come over and confronted her, she wouldn't have gone after him either. She wouldn't have tried to get him killed because he knew. And that's where I think she does have some sympathy for him. And I think that's, to me, I think that's why she doesn't pull the trigger a second time. Because it's not that she wants him to die. She's definitely not, again, not in love with him. But I do think that she has kind of a soft spot for him where she you know she's sympathetic to him and that's why she doesn't shoot him again and screws herself over so don't have sympathy yep. ladies don't if you're gonna, it's not if worth you're it gonna, if you're gonna commit murder and use a guy as a dupe definitely be certain that you're comfortable killing him like get just... rid of all the witnesses <laughs> 
it had been so easy to just go. He came over. He was he was uh, yelling at me. He attacked me. You know, it had been mm-hmm. so easy for her to get away with it. Uh, he killed my husband because he was obsessed with me, and exactly. then he came after me. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. She's got the whole narrative right there. She just needed to to shoot him a second time. Yep. So sorry about that, Barbara Stanwyck. Just... But this is a Hayes Code movie, so we couldn't have her get away <laughs> with murder <laughs> twice. <laughs> Dang. I know. Uh, so anything else about Double Indemnity before we move on to a film that you love? So good. So good. All right. Let's talk about Sunset Boulevard. Karen, why, why don't you tell us about your feelings about Sunset Boulevard? Okay. So as much as I love Wilder's dialogue in Double Indemnity, I am obsessed with it in Sunset Boulevard. Um, it is first of all it's about a hollywood screenwriter and so it's like and he's also much like in double indemnity he's the narrator of the story although unlike uh double indemnity where the narrator is dying in sunset boulevard the narrator is dead (laughs) he is he starts the story where he is lying dead in a pool and he tells us how he got there and i think that setup is so fascinating and um it's unusual it is very it unusual. Is so unusual especially for the time period i mean this is this is 1950 mm-hmm. like having your narrator explicitly too it's not like it's a it's the twist at the end we see yeah. him in the pool dead yeah and it's As very much talking. like a well i bet you're wondering how i ended up here <laughs> yeah, it's very like record scratch kind of <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and of course that writer is william holden who's playing joe gillis who is he he's had a little bit of success in his screenwriting career but he's fallen on rough times he's about to lose like they're after him to get his car he's getting it repoed so he's hiding it and he's running away from the repo men and ends up at the home of norma desmond who was a silent movie siren um big star who has kind of disappeared from view and she's played by gloria swanson who sort of went through a similar arc she didn't go crazy like norma desmond but um but she went through a similar thing she was uh, a popular silent movie actress and then just kind of disappeared for a while and um so she gives this great performance um as she becomes increasingly unhinged (laughs) well actually no i don't know if she becomes increasingly unhinged or if uh we just see more and more of it as it goes i think she's already pretty much gone by the time (laughs) joe meets her at the beginning of the movie she's pretty off although she's not like she's delusional but she is not crazy delusional and i i'm using i'm saying like yeah she she's got mental issues right she hasn't completely crossed over to where she is at the end which is she she is completely like unhinged she's not there there anymore yeah yeah. she's not there anymore Mm -hmm. yeah and it it turns out she's basically but just been living alone in her mansion with her her servant max uh, played by Eric von Stroheim. And it's just the two of them. And she's been very isolated. Hollywood has forgotten about her. And there's just, I think what I love about Sunset Boulevard, um, apart from the, like, in addition to the interesting setup, is I just really love this um, this view of of Hollywood and the, like, the kind of, obviously it's, it's, um, it's all ratcheted up. It's not literally accurate, but it really does dive into some some very interesting mm-hmm. and 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 true things about the way that Hollywood turns its back on people like so quickly. You could be in one day and you're out the next. And Joe experiences that, and he can't get a movie made despite having mm-hmm. some some success recently. And um, and then you really particularly see it with Norma. And how everyone has, she was a huge star. She's, she's rich and she has just been completely forgotten. And there's a really great scene we can talk about in a minute involving Cecil B. DeMille that I think really Mm -hmm. drives home everything that we need to know about Norma Desmond. So that's why I love, I love Sunset Boulevard. I, I 
I completely understand. It's it's not a film that I've watched a lot. I've seen it a couple of times. Uh, it's actually been like this this time. This was the first time I'd watched it in a while. Um, and so I'd forgot there were a, a huge parts of it that I'd forgotten. I remembered the the setup and I remembered a lot of kind of the big famous scenes. But yeah, it, in terms of it, it really being in dialogue with the Hollywood of its time period, it's very much contemporary. Mm-hmm. It's set more or less in, in the contemporary moment of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and it's very, very deliberate about the casting and about the dialogue that it, that it's having with Hollywood history and stardom. Because you do have like Gloria Swanson is the is the most obvious one. She is this huge star of yesteryear kind of thing. Um, she's not that old. She's 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, she looks fucking fantastic. If you actually look beyond the makeup and the crazy eyes, you're just like, you look great there, Gloria. Yeah. <laughs> like, and she actually was 50 when they filmed it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but then you also have all of these other characters. You've got uh, um Buster Keaton shows up briefly as a um, as one of the bridge players. Uh, I think it's H.W. Warner, who was mm-hmm. Cecil, who Cecil B. DeMille's uh, Jesus and King of Kings in yep. the 19, in the nineteen twenties. So, and then you got Hopper. Had a Hopper's there. Uh, um, oh, now I'm blanking. Oh, so of course Cecil B. DeMille, but Eric von Stroheim. So you've got these very recognizable figures who would still be recognizable in 1950 and are still recognizable today uh, of like these people that not have been left behind necessarily. Like the mills was still working. Von Stroheim was still working, but are very much associated with that earlier period of Hollywood. Um, And then let's talk about the conversation that with DeMille and the kind of, it's one of the few times that we really get insight into what happened to to Norma Mm -hmm. because we don't get tons of her backstory. Like we know that she was a big star and that she's not a big star anymore. And she kind of receded and hid, but we never really get why that happened except in that conversation with DeMille. Yeah. And even then we don't get a lot of detail about it. It's sort of one of those things you get the sense that there's like a Hollywood legend around it and everyone knows part of the story. He knows the whole thing because he was probably there for it. But um, but other than that, like it's one of those things that nobody really knows what happened. And because there's a, a line where one of the assistants says like when she shows up basically she shows up at paramount studios because she's written a screenplay and she's gotten these calls and she thinks demille wants to to produce her script and turns out that's a big misunderstanding and someone just wants to rent her car (laughs) for a movie production um but when she comes to to the soundstage where demille is working uh, everyone sees her people recognize her and they kind of all gather around they're just like mm-hmm. wow it's norma desmond and she has this this moment in the spotlight again and someone says to demille uh off to the side like oh yeah i heard she was really difficult which it's it's <laughs> like that's a <laughs> that's a death word you know even today <laughs> And, and so just the fact that, that this is something that women were branded with, you know, 80 years ago, um, 70 years ago, whatever. But, um, anyway, so then when DeMille says, no, not, not really, except for, you know, at the end. And, and so you get this sense that something had happened and then Mm -hmm. he talks a little bit about it, but, um, but she had just been kind of this you know, this amazing actress who then got to the height of her career and things were changing, you know, as, as talkies were coming in and, yep. and, and that was where she just kind of started to lose it. And she even, there's a lot of times where she's reminiscing on her career and complains kind of about the introduction of sound into movies and how that kind of ruined everything and so you really get the sense that she just couldn't adjust with the times and um and but i just i love demille and how um how compassionate he is and how he just he won't let people say things negative about her just like no 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 no. hold on you need to understand 
yeah, the world he, he, has moved on without her, and that has been very difficult. He he talks about like knowing her since she was like seventeen years old, mm-hmm. and like remembering what she was on the screen and all of that. And there there is a line, and I can't remember the exact line, um, but where he says like the it's it's about the cruelty with which the press treated her. And there's, so there's, and it it never gets elaborated on. There's not like, oh, let me tell you the tragic backstory. Right. But it is this implication that somewhere something was said that just devastated her and that drove her back. Mm -hmm. Um, And it might've been a lot of different somethings, you know, not just a single thing um, that like just completely made her recede and that isolated her and that kind of made her kind, kind of turn in on herself and on her history and not be outside of that anymore. And that it yeah. was very much, it was very much not something that she specifically did. Right. But what was done to her. Yeah. So I just found there's um, like when she first arrives at the studio before she's come in and, and seen DeMille, um, the assistant director comes to him and is trying to, is telling her like, yeah, I can, I can give her an excuse. I can, he says, I can give her the brush. And then DeMille says 30 million fans have given her the brush. Isn't that enough? And I just love the compassion in that, that simple line, Mm -hmm. you know, of just, he understands it's a really big deal that she left her house and came here and I'm going to give her my time. Yeah, it, it's the that whole sequence is is wonderful. I I want to go back to what you said about like like the spotlight getting turned on her because that's literally what happens. Mm-hmm. Like the the guy that she like she knows a guy who operates the lights and he's probably been there since the nineteen teens, right? Yeah, and he he turns the spotlight on her and everybody sees her in the spotlight for the first time in how many years and they all kind of crowd around her. It's and I think one of the things that Wilder does so well throughout this film is that kind of image, that kind of lighting, because there's so much dialogue like William Holden's character talks constantly. He, we, we have both the voice, his voiceover and his telling the story, as well as just him talking. Right. And she talks, too. But so much of the focus on her is very much about the image and about how she is filmed the lighting how she is shot you know all of the things that kind of surround her and it's both gorgeous and very sad because you can just see her reaching for for something that no longer exists yeah um and is very it's very much like this the film externalizing that whole conflict between you know talkies right which literally especially in kind of the move from silent to talking talkies got very talking mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of talking there's a lot of sound because it was a new technology right it was something new to be used and so there were a lot of stars who got left behind because their voices weren't right or they could hold the camera but they couldn't speak basically mm-hmm. um and and the film i think balances that really well of seeing that conflict and seeing that change and it being something that Norma can't let go of. Um, and and of course, and it also results in some iconic lines. Like, you know, I was always big. It was the pictures that got small, you know, all of those things. But that, that you know, bringing everything back to the image and her image and how she looks and how she wants to be perceived. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. It um, is so good. I just I again like just to to the the writing it's it's so compelling and I I I think one of the things about you know looking at double indemnity where you have this this doofus insurance agent who where everything's focused through him now in Sunset Boulevard everything's focused through this screenwriter and so the narration is even just very like something out of you know out of a novel mm-hmm. or something like it's it's so it's written in such a way that you you believe that a screenwriter would would say these things just the way that he describes the house yeah. i had to pull this up because i love it so much this is when he first arrives at 1080 or 10,086 sunset boulevard which is a house i think <laughs> like an actual house not where they actually filmed her house but <laughs> i believe there is a real house there but anyway um he says 
Come think of it, the whole place seemed to have been stricken with the kind of creeping paralysis, out of beat with the rest of the world, crumbling apart in slow motion. There was a tennis court, or rather, the ghost of a tennis court, with faded markings and a sagging net. And of course she had a pool. Who didn't, then? Mabel Norman and John Gilbert must have swum in it 10,000 midnights ago. It was empty now. Or was it? I just, oh. So good. So good. But then, so the movie also deals with, again, really, you know, really dark themes. Not just Norma being, you know, withdrawn from the world and forgotten about, but also being suicidal. And, um, and it deals with, with her mental health issues and what this has done to her in, in such a way that you really do feel sorry for her. It's not, it's not just like, oh, you know, the, the dramatic actress is, is just Mm -hmm. crazy again. It's like, you really feel for this woman because of, of everything that's happened to her. And she she's not vilified uh like what and 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 there is but she's filled she's not vilified but she's also not excused right it's it's kind of a good it's a very good balance like it's not like oh she did nothing wrong she's like no she did a lot a lot of things wrong Mm -hmm. and she does a lot more things wrong as the film goes on but so much of it is about this a lot of it is about the system that these people are trapped in and i think that the film does a good job of making you feel for all of them like you understand yeah. the William Holden character who's basically being, he becomes a kept man, right? That's that's what the implication is. Mm-hmm. That she she's paying for everything. Everything that he has belongs to her, et cetera. And she's kind of try what she's trying to do really is to try to buy his love. Right. And and she can't, of course, because that's not possible. It's, it's always going to end badly. Um, and he's bothered by it. And it, 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 you know, festers within him. But you feel sympathy for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel sympathy for for Max, who loves her so much. And oh, when he reveals her, that he was her first husband, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, this poor man. <laughs> but even the the William Holden character basically points out we're we might care about her, but we're doing it in the wrong way because they mm-hmm. keep on lying to her. They keep on letting her live in her delusions, and it's the delusions that get bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. Until finally when reality sets in. Yeah. And, Those delusions keep all three of them trapped. Yeah. And then reality sets in and it, it results in violence and death and madness, basically. Because of course it does. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's it's a very sympathetic film and it's a very understanding film for being so dark in so many ways. And I, I do like the fact that she as a character she's somewhat grotesque but she's not an object of derision it's not mm-hmm. like that she's a bad person or anything like that. It's just like no this is a really damaged person who's been damaged by the system around her yeah um and has reacted to it in a really bad way uh and then i i think i know that we're going long on this one but um i think we need to talk about just briefly at least that the final sequence yes um which is so famous so iconic like it's one of those that shows up in clip shows all the time Mm -hmm. but just the turning on of the cameras and the lights and you know the 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 metatextual thing of eric von stroheim playing this washed up director instructing the cameramen to turn the cameras on and to turn the lights on and to kind of give her this moment as she's gone completely off her head yeah has murdered someone and is about to be arrested well and even for the police that are there to arrest her and when one when someone realizes well if we feed into this delusion we can get her to come downstairs you know on her own yeah and so yeah so everyone just kind of just plays into it because that's how they can get her to go without force and well, it and works it, it gives her a certain odd dignity as well yeah. like there there is this like they all kind of realize mm-hmm. that she's not there anymore basically yeah. but there is this like let her have this last moment mm-hmm. and so they because they could just grab her and carry her out she's not a big woman <laughs> Right. But it would be dangerous. It would be violent. It would be embarrassing. It would be a fe- like it, it would be bad in so many different ways. And uh, and they don't do that. Yeah. And yeah. And that final like that whole 
the, the descending the staircase and then her breaking character and then just being like, oh, I'm, I'm just so happy to be back. You know, all of those things. It's so powerful and so sad and just a brilliant performance by Swanson. Mm-hmm. Yep. Personally, I love All About Eve, but I wish Gloria Swanson had won. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a one-two punch, though, man. Oh, like, I know. Those are some serious <laughs> films right there. So true. About show business, too. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so for our final film, we are going to chat uh, for a little bit about Witness for the Prosecution. And again, if you have not seen this one, skip it. Come back to it later. Uh, it's it's a great film. So this film is um, based on a 1926 Agatha Christie play that she actually then rewrote in the 1950s to make it a little bit more less nihilistic, apparently. <laughs> uh, and and this this one stars Tyrone Power, Marlena Dietrich, uh, Charles Lawton, and Elsa Lanchester. Um, Charles Lawton plays a, a, a barrister who has just recently had a heart attack, is coming home, has been told, you're not allowed to take on any big cases. You're not allowed to do anything. You have to rest. Elsa Lanchester is his nurse. They are fucking adorable together. I love the two of them together. Uh, they were married in real life, actually. And um, and she's basically trying this entire time to like keep him calm. <laughs> and keep him from doing anything that's going to excite him. And what results is that he winds up taking a case uh, of of the murder of a woman by uh, Leonard Vole, played by Tyrone Power, who is claiming that, no, he didn't kill her. He was just friends with her. Um, but the the evidence is very stacked against him, including the fact that his wife, Christine, played by Marlene Dietrich, uh, seems to be 100% set on getting him thrown in prison and getting him executed. So most of the film is is pretty much divided into the initial meetings between the characters at at uh, Sir Wilfred's offices and then the actual court case. Um, like the other two films, it is a lot of this film is about perspective. It's about who tells the story and who we believe. And it's really interesting because it's filtered through this whole um, issue of what the lawyers are trying to figure out and trying to understand both what the truth is, what, who is lying, um, why they're lying, and, and then also how they can use all of those truths and lies to save this man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's what we expect from Agatha Christie. It's very sharp. It's very sharply written. Uh, Wilder did work on the screenplay to adapt it. Um, but it, it's just a fantastic film, I think, all around. So what what are your feelings about this, Karen? Oh, I loved it, too. This was actually the first time I'd watched it just this week. So really, um, yeah. So I I just had not seen it before. I don't I don't know how I missed it, but I just hadn't. And so it was really fun to watch. I, there were definitely things that because there's been, you know, 60 years of movies since this. 60 plus um there were things that i guessed that i probably wouldn't have guessed if i had seen this in 1957 or whatever um but not lessen my enjoyment at all in fact it kind of made it a little bit even that much more fun to to really just be like ooh, what's gonna happen next you know and like i think it's gonna be this and then being right or being wrong or whatever but um i think one of the things that just makes this movie so good and works so well is Charles Lawton. Yeah. And the fact that, so his, his Sir Wilfred, um, you just, you get the sense that he's not someone that anybody can fool. Like nobody can pull anything over on him. He's very shrewd. He knows what's up. And so when, when he's presented with this case and they want him to defend this guy, He's looking like he's kind of questioning it at first, but then he's like, "Okay, all right, I believe you now I can now I can represent you and seeing what ends up transpiring. (laughs) It's just like, wow, this is this is like such a hit for him, you know, and like it just it's so good. And he he's so he's just so much fun to watch in this role and to watch him him just kind of dealing with 
different setbacks as they come and really like hearing people and like he he's such a good listener like just watching him listen to people you like he's great at at, at mm-hmm. the 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 speaking part too but he's so good and like he does so much acting with his face while he's listening that it's just it's he's just so fun throughout this whole movie to watch it's it's a very deft performance like mm-hmm. like you say he um he's so I think because he's so he's such a powerful actor to begin with. Like you're you're just like, and you like the guy. Like the second he comes over, you're just like, you're fucking adorable. I love yeah. you. You irascible <laughs> asshole. I love you. Like, mm-hmm. and and I it's it's fun to watch. Like the the kind of interplay, especially between him and Elsa Lanchester, and just like his total contempt for everything that she's trying to do. And she's just like, nope, I'm gonna take care of you. I don't care what you say. I'm gonna keep you alive, goddammit. <laughs> um, yes. And how that also shifts, especially as she begins to like watch him in the, the courtroom and is and she becomes more invested and just like, oh, not only do I want to keep him alive, but I really like this guy. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but he has he the character has such authority that yeah. you do think that nothing can be put over on him so whatever he thinks is absolutely what we're going to go with mm-hmm. and then it's yeah. put over on him and he realizes it um as the the kind of third act is coming to a close he's like something's wrong this isn't right i missed something and and then it's it's revealed what he missed right but it what is, is- it's- it's devastating for him. It's devastating for the audience too, because you're just like, no, we trusted, we believed in you. Right. What is the line he says? It's at the end. He says something about they've they've taken down the gallows, but there's still a banana peel to slip on or something like that. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, that's so that's like you just can see he's he's trying to work it out. He still doesn't know who's really the villain here. He can't he can't get to that on his own. But he just he just knows something yeah. isn't right. And and just the way that he he delivers that line is just so good. Because uh, at that point, we're we're as an audience thinking like, oh yay, Vol got acquitted, justice is is justice wins, everything's good. But because he's because Sir Wilfred suddenly just is like nope this isn't right then we know oh there's more of the story this isn't over yeah it's it's very deftly done because you begin to get those kind of cracks in his own Mm -hmm. perception that he's like something is not right something Mm -hmm. i'm missing something and i don't know what it is and and it clues the audience in to kind of be like this is the end but it's not the end quite yet Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that also, you know, again, Wilder, you know, talked about noir. Wilder is very good at, at understanding genre as well. And this is an Agatha Christie story. So as an Agatha Christie story, we as the audience and uh, as and Wilder is the director and the screenwriter are going into it with the knowledge that there's going to be a twist. There's going to be something that the characters don't grasp onto until quite late in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for oh. Sir Wilfred's like peace of mind, <laughs> not that he needs it, but you know, um, it's not something that he could have figured out because there was no way for him to know who was actually lying and what the what the real truth was. Like it wasn't something that he could have solved without someone confessing. Well, yeah, exactly. It's it's again the who's telling the story, who's mm-hmm. and who do you believe right. in the moment. Um, and who is lying, and if they are lying, why are they lying? Mm-hmm. Um, what are they lying about? You know, and and he points it out at one point where he says about Christine, um, you know, you're a liar. <laughs> like he's just he's just like you've lied this entire time. And what he doesn't, what doesn't click for him, and that what maybe doesn't click for the audience as well is that yeah, she has. So what do we actually believe about what she has said and where do we believe it? Why do we decide that that is the thing that we believe in, not something else? Mm-hmm. Um, and a- again, very, very deftly done, deftly written and, and really brilliantly acted, I think, on, on all of their parts. Yeah. Um, one of the things that having watched this film several times really still sucks me in is Tyrone Power and particularly his kind of affability Mm -hmm. and then at the same time you do not trust him 
Like it's, it's a really interesting balance. Cause I think the film does try to keep you off balance about whether or not he committed the murder for a good yeah. bit of it. And then he's got that breakdown where Christine betrays him and right. he's, and he's like, you know, screaming and crying, like I didn't kill her, you know, all of these things. It's so good because he's such a likable screen presence, but you also haven't trusted him, but also now you want to trust him. And that's where I really wonder how this would have played in 1957 like would i have felt that Mm -hmm. that like i don't think i trust you or is that me having decades of of movie experience and knowing that like just because he seems nice doesn't mean you should believe him you know (laughs) like i'm not sure where i'm not i'm i'm just not sure well, I think some of it is is also Agatha Christie. Like I, in mm-hmm. the 1950s, if you're aware of who Agatha Christie is, which you are, um, and have like seen her, read her books, seen her plays, et cetera, she always keeps the reader off balance of someone, someone is lying. There's another thing going on here, but what is it? True. Um, and and that's the question that she constantly plays with. So I do I do think to a certain degree, the audience would go into that again, with that kind of genre expectation, um, but not necessarily knowing this is the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Really quickly, let's talk briefly about Marlene Dietrich before we close all this out, because yeah. she is so good. <laughs> you know, all three of these films feature very central, very powerful female performances of women who are not necessarily good people, but are very sympathetic. Yeah. And she plays that so well, like what we're supposed to feel about her and how we're supposed to understand her changes so much throughout the film. It's true. And just from the first introduction of her, when she's telling the story about how she and, um, and Vol met and like she she'll give enough where she's not self-deprecating but where she'll be like just honest enough about her history and and kind of what her life was like that you just believe everything she says um because it seems like okay she's she's an open book she's willing to tell you the truth Mm -hmm. and that's part of why it's so easy to to fall into and believe what she says um and Dietrich just really sells that. And um, part of that is just because she's such a beautiful, talented actress. And part of it is, again, the way this this character is written. Yeah. And she's very um, Dietrich always has this kind of archness to her that she yeah. kind of knows something that she's not telling. And she's sort of laughing at everybody as a result. But um and that plays really well in into this where she seems so cold initially mm-hmm. and then fairly quickly you see the cracks in that but again much like the 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 entire thing is about perception um in seeing the cracks you're not quite certain what you're seeing right <laughs> what what does it actually mean um yeah. and and why is she making the choices that she is uh the the one thing that i think this film does very well and you know, maybe maybe it's just me, but one of the problems that I think always comes up in filmed versions of Christie's stories um, is that is some when someone has to be in disguise and they have to be unrecognizable. Almost always they're recognizable. Yeah, <laughs> it's very hard not to. However, I will say that they did a very good makeup job, and it took me several minutes to be like, I think is that I think it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like the, the it, there's just enough question around her like performance of the Cockney lady. Yeah. That I was I was like, I like literally looked up the cast list to be certain that I that there wasn't like like someone who's <laughs> listed for that. So I was like, I I'm pretty positive that's Marlene Dietrich, but I'm gonna make certain. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's one of those things where, um. Like it's easy to to not totally disguise them to clue the audience in, but it's so important, and it has to, like, you have to not be sure that that's her in order for that to work. 
Yeah. And, and it's hard to do on film. Like there's so many mm-hmm. films that I've seen that, that try to do that. Just like that is, I know who that is. Like, and I've just solved the whole portion of the story. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not easy. And particularly in a film like this, where again, the audience is, is conditioned to find cracks to, to figure out what is actually going on. Um, and I, I just really, I like the way that they did that because it's unusual. And I was, so I was fooled in part um and and really liked the fact that i was fooled mhm yeah uh, so anything else about witness for the prosecution or billy wilder before we close this out uh billy wilder is great witness for the prosecution is a lot of fun and if you have not seen it definitely watch it it's on like canopy and hoopla and um i think it's in a few places it's on yeah it's also on Tubi. it's on um i watched it on pluto tv oh uh, yeah, yeah yeah again you have to deal with with advertisements but um it's a great it's a fantastic film like it's so it's good. so well done yep so i think that is going to close us out and that's our last episode for this november um thank you so much for listening to us and as always we want to thank our lovely patrons who include Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Lauren, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and we really hope that you guys are, have enjoyed our bonus episode about Blood Simple, which should be on the, the Patreon now. I think that it was, I loved talking about that. Speaking of perspective. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh which i probably repeated we probably repeated ourselves quite a bit here actually um but yeah blood simple and uh and we have to bring some some new bonus episodes as well uh before long so if you want to join our patreon that's patreon.com slash citizen dame we also have our zazzle store zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and our co-hyphen account uh co-hyphen account <laughs> co-fi account co-hyphen.com slash citizen dame <laughs> You can, of course, go. It, it's been a long episode, so I uh, can, of course, go to our website, citizendamepod.com. And <laughs> you can email us. We are at citizendamepod at gmail.com. And you can also, of course, get in touch with us on all the various socials. We're not really on Twitter anymore. I don't think that we've updated it in a while, um, but we are at citizendamepod on Instagram and Blue Sky and at Citizen Dame on Letterboxd. Please give us a follow on Letterboxd um, because you can get all of our episodes there, articles, and our lists. We have many lists about all of the films that we are talking about. And of course, you can get in touch with us individually. Karen, where are you? I am on all the social medias, especially Letterboxd and Instagram and kind of Blue Sky at Karen M. Peterson. And I am on the various socials at LH Business. So that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Also, sorry, if you want Blue Sky and you're not in on it, just email me because I've got some some codes. <laughs> yeah, same, same. Shoot us, shoot us an email if you want to come on a Blue Sky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. I can't go on with the scene. I'm too happy. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio, making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us cameras and those wonderful people out there in the dark all right mr demille i'm ready for my close-up <laughs>